right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B, and we are fired up today. It's not that often you can just call, right? And I don't know. Let me text a senior manager at GM, probably a guy in charge of cool things like, you know, suspensions, brakes, uh, you know, dynamic vehicle systems, that kind of level status. I mean, that's that's big, Kev. <laughs> that's just where it starts, man. That's that's kind of like the baseline. Yeah. Now, now take that same guy. Who, who might have just kind of been the inspiration, the starting point, maybe even the godfather of what we know now as pro touring, right? One of the builder of probably some of the best built hot rods, track cars ever, and probably one of the top drivers that you could kind of, you know, rub elbows with, uh, you know, whether it's drinking a cold one or out on the track, a guy who can just rip it up. So, you know, we're kind of adding a pretty powerful list here, and yeah. maybe there's a few folks out there who can kind of start to piece together who we might be talking about. Well, you know, I was thinking my mom, but I'm not sure, man. I don't know if she's quite as gifted. Your mom can't drive. Oh, my mom can she drive. She can't drive, seen her. Like a bat out of hell, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. We have a special little treat for you today. How do you know Mark? Well, it's kind of funny because... Um, in a, in a weird sort of way, I mean, almost anybody that's a car guy knows Mark. And he lives, you know, kind of right down the street from me almost, you know, a couple miles away. Uh, but it's kind of a bizarro world. You know, if you know, like, the Super Friends way back when we were kids. And uh, then there's, like, yeah. you know, bizarro world Superman who kind of, like, looks the same, yeah. but, like, a little chiseled. You know, things are just slightly off. <laughs> like, you know, we're both uh, engineers. <laughs> we both went to, you know, engineering school. We both were huge into Formula SAE. You know, we both went to a... Uh, an OE, so I'm at Ford and he's at GM. You know, we're both big into hot rods and building cool cars. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before those two bizarro and normal world. I'm not going to say who's in which one, you know, kind of clash and overrun. But uh, yeah, I mean, I crossed paths with him years ago. Um, I remember, I think, uh, watching him on one of the early Optima races out in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, I think I was judging, he was driving like mad. I believe he won that year which was kind of mind-blowing because here's a guy in a 60-something Camaro. It was probably 69 that year. And you've got, you know, the 05 Ford GT. You've got GTRs. You've got every hot, you know, dog as far as the car scene goes. And here's a guy in a 50-year-old car ripping by everybody and, and takes the trophy. <laughs> somebody, you, somebody that's hard to forget, man. But, yeah, we've been over to his uh, car barbecue a couple times. He's got every year huge... Huge spread of just the cool local guys in Detroit scene. 
with uh, awesome builds, hot dogs, and beer, man. Yeah, man. Um, That's where it's at. Great guy to rub elbows with. And today, we're going to pick his brain because he's one of the sharpest car cats out there from designing to building to driving the damn tires off. So everybody get ready, man. This is where we maybe learn a few things, get smarter, get tighter, and pick this guy's head apart, man. See what we can get out of him. Yeah, man. What do you think? Well, I think my mom can't uh, hold a candle to Mark. So let's take a break, man. When we come back, <laughs> we'll have Mark on. All right, and that big that big build up there. I, I'm kind of I may have to talk to him. So. All kinds. I, just, I would suggest you grab a number two lead pencil and some paper to take some notes. We'll be back with the man in just a minute on the Two Guys Garage podcast. It's the Two Guys Garage podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. And we have Mark Stilo. He's a senior manager at GM in the Advanced Vehicle Dynamics Division. And I got to tell you, Mark, that is one hell of a title. Every car guy out there would be just jelly, absolutely jelly of that title. Comes uh, with a lot of stripes and a lot of cool points, I'm sure. Yeah, I've been really fortunate. I've been able to do a lot of really fun and interesting things in my career at GM. So it kind of my uh, my passions. I've been I've, I've been able to do what I've always wanted to do when I was in college. So it's been a it's been a great thing. Yeah, man, that's not working a day of your life, is it? You can keep on doing what you're crazy about in college the rest of your life. Oh, that's a fantastic world. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy to navigate too, right? You get into these big corporations, and uh, you know, nothing against it, but you could be the guy designing the tail lights or the rearview mirror or the door handle or whatever it is, the carpet. Uh, but to get in a role, yeah. you know, as a car guy, because there's a lot of engineers that they don't care, toaster, car. You know, washing machine, it's all the same right. thing. But, you know, if you're a real passionate car guy, right, you want to try to get into an area where you're just stoked every day to go in and push the boundaries to, you know, really create the next thing, the fastest thing, the coolest thing. And, um, yeah, again, in a big corporation like a GM or a Ford or whoever, trying to navigate in there and not get stuck in a rut and, you know, get to where you can really shine. Uh, it, it says a lot. And if you can get to those spots, I mean, that's that's just you know that's the top. Yeah, man. So how long have you been doing it at GM? Uh, so I started off in 1988 as a summer intern, and uh, I was I had a great opportunity. I was uh, I met a guy by the name of Chuck Hughes, uh, and he was the chief engineer on Camaro. And my first summer intern job was working on the F car showroom stock race programs. So I was I was blown away. So I met Chuck Hughes. He was the chief engineer of the Camaro at the time, and we hit it off. And he was like, "Hey, I'm looking for somebody to help us out with the uh, with the Camaro race program." And that's what I did my first year. And then to top it off, wow. to top it off, the end of the, my summer project that year was I put in production the first eight one LE Camaro and Firebirds. So I had to go out to Van Nuys, California, actually carried some of the parts in my duffel bag. And we built the <laughs> first cars in Van Nuys, and we had to build the cars. Otherwise, all those races we won that summer would have been thrown out because we hadn't actually built those cars yet. So we had to build. So them. wait, as this is you as an intern? Yeah, as, yeah, I was. It was a like. How old were you? I was twenty three at the time, somewhere around there. Dude, you must have had a hot girlfriend, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what uh, started the whole bug. You know, just I got there and I was a kid, and I was. Blown away. I, I never forget it. I, I, I came into Detroit and uh, I sat in front of the Chevrolet Central Office and watched them unload all the Corvette Challenge race cars in the rain. 
and uh, I'll never forget it. Like, I'm, this is where I need to be. This is this is the spot. Yeah, man. So was that part of the 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 strategy? Is just go race, and if we do real well, then we'll go homologate the cars. And if we don't do well, well I'll forget it. We'll just well, not go through that. That effort. was we're, we were kind of in a gray area. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they 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 came they came up with a, a series of parts to be competitive against the Porsche 944 turbos, a bigger brake setup, a bigger fuel tank, and some other lightweight parts, and uh, you had to. You had to pick a performance, uh, either the Camaro or Firebird 305 five-speed or 350 automatic with no air conditioning, and that drove the 1LE package. So there was a few people who ordered that car, and they ended up getting this, you know, pretty rare, you know, I don't even know where those cars ended up. I've never seen one for sale, but in 88, only eight of them were built. Wow. So how has, I bet, you know, in the position that you're in, you know, nowadays doing advanced vehicle dynamics is probably things like, you know, safety, reliability, connected car, autonomous vehicles, that sort of thing. What what was it 1988? Like what was, you know, because you've seen this massive paramount shift, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the complexity of vehicles. I mean, you know, I was actually like looking at some cars recently and like, you know, 88 PFI, you know, port fuel injection was just coming online. You know, the horsepower was really low. Like, cars were pretty simple. Yeah, in the twos, bro. It's like 260, 290, 315, yeah. you know? So, yeah. yeah when, I was in the, <laughs> when I was in high performance vehicle operations, I worked on the Cobalt SS, and that four cylinder supercharged car would have outran the 1LE Camaros we were building back in the 80s. Wow. So. Yeah, that just shows you where we've gone. You know, a cobalt, dude. Even wow. in the last ten years or so, like you know, the advancements that we've got. So on the one side, you know, obviously tons of performance and efficiencies and everything else. Uh, but you know, from Mark's side, the complexity, right? The complexity of trying to do all that engineering and how many people it takes and how many computers yeah. and just all the processing that's going on and behind the scenes. Uh, it's it's got to be unreal. And you know, I, actually, it's kind of a cool question. Maybe we'll you know been a little bit later when we start talking about you know, really the tire on the road, right? What does it take to go fast? Um, you know, what struck me, you know, several years ago, again, watching Mark out on the, the Optima race course, uh, you know, here's a vehicle, you know, 69 Camaro with technically, uh, you know, a 60 year old, 50 year old chassis and setup, obviously with some modern things like, you know, the LS type engines and transmission and stuff that goes with it. Um, but you know, how much of that stability control, traction control, ABS, right? You know, when it comes to uh, setting up a car really well and then learning how to drive, right? This is one of the questions that, you know, Mark can kind of answer, you know, how much of that stuff do you really need? And is it, uh, you know, is it the advantage or can you, can you make up for it by just having a big, you know, set of, you know, what's, you know, between your trousers, you know, to man up on some high-speed corners? Yeah. <laughs> He's talking about balls. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, what's it like with, uh, you know, the modern cars? And then, yeah, as you transition into, uh, you know, your builds and being on the track, like with all that complexity and be able to strip some of it out or missing some of it, you know, what's kind of the end game there? I mean, the, the big example I can, there's a couple of areas there that I can talk to. The first one is ABS brakes. And uh, early on, ABS, people, you know, a good driver with a passive system could outbreak, you know, the early ABS systems because the efficiency wasn't there. Now the racing and, and uh, high fidelity ABS systems are way better than anything a passive driver can do. So ABS systems are hands down a, a great safety feature and they make your guy go faster around the racetrack. 
Now, on the other end of the car, performance traction management, for 10 years ago when we first started messing with that stuff, I'd always turn it off. I was always faster without it. In the last couple generations of cars, we've really refined all that stuff. And I can drive just as fast with it off, but I can drive fast with it on and a lot less effort. And the average guy can, you know, now that the cars have so much power, they can put in a different mode and, and, and keep the car more under them. And as they learn the car, freed up a little bit more to give them more power as they kind of get a little bit better as a driver. Yeah, you could let the car loose as you, as you learn how to handle it. I, you know, it's funny because seeing that, I go, we got a couple road courses out here and do some autocross stuff, and it was really cool. A couple years ago, watching my buddy who uh, does go for it racing out here, um, and he's a hell of a driver. He could take a lot of the stability control and all those mechanisms off of his, you know, his brand new C7 when those came out and be just as fast. But as he understood the car, lightened it up, put some power underneath it, those did provide another, just another layer of protection and getting through, you know, adverse turns and trying to unsettle the car. He made it through just, you know, ever so much quicker with some of that on and some of that aiding available to him. And I, I watched regular guys who were new to, you know, being in the seat of a race car, learn that really fast and click off some really good times. You turn all that off and they're a train wreck. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah man. It is like they lose that confidence and control in, in a click of a couple buttons. Well, some of the stuff that's, some of the stuff that's hidden on like when I was with a program manager in the Z28, we put a flying car mode in there. So for a tracks like the Nürburgring where the car truly gets airborne, we had a mode that when it got airborne, it, did, it didn't just flare the tires up. It kept the car, the tires at a constant speed. So when the car landed, it was faster wow. and more stable. <laughs> so there's like a lot of, there's a lot of like hidden elements inside these control systems that the average guy will probably never use, but they're, they're, they're that deep. Well, and there's probably speed factor, right? I mean, there's only so fast that you're, you know, whatever your senses are that the car is coming around or the tire slipping or one tire slipping or, you know, so there's probably a speed factor that sensors and computers can, you know, sense and detect and, you know, figure out what to do faster than the human can. And if you think about, you know, back in 88, when you had whatever it was, 260 horsepower or something, yeah, maybe you didn't need any kind of traction control. You wanted all 260, yeah. you know, maybe another 260. But, you know, when you start pushing <laughs> north of 500, yeah. right, you're exceeding the tire capability. Now you're in, you know, cars that are into seven, eight, nine hundred. So, I mean, in all kinds of gears now, you can just break the tire loose. So, you can imagine, you know, almost how critical, uh, you know, something like track control and vehicle dynamics, you know, stability control could really help you out when you're doing, you know, 80, 90, 100 plus going into some big sweeper uh, with 900 horsepower under your foot. But again, yeah. that's probably back to uh, seat time and, and how big a cojones you got. Yeah, I mean, I do uh, some driver training at GM and, you know, everybody's got to kind of get their, their experience bucket and what they're comfortable with, what kind of cars they've been exposed to, what kind of speed levels they've been, they've been exposed to. So everybody's got to kind of creep up on it. And now you can go out and, you know, and buy a new ZR1 or Z06 and like right off the crack, you got 650 horsepower. So it's really kind of best to kind of turn some of the control strategies on as you learn the car and kind of and free it up as you go. Yeah. Well, what's, you know, in your whole history at GM, what's been maybe one of your favorite projects you talked about your early one you know which might have set the stage and got you kind of geeked up and on the path but 
you know, what other kind of project have you stumbled through or that uh, just kind of a standout? Well, the standout was, you know, I was asked to head up this project, the 2014-15 uh, Camaro Z28, and it was a really track-focused car, and I got to see that car from, you know, cradle to grave. So it was deeply satisfying, and not so much all the boardroom fights, but, you know, a year, two years later, after you put the cars going into production, you remembered, oh, I fought for that, and that got on the car, and that made the car really good. And, you know, I got a chance to take the car to the Nürburgring and drive it. I got in dogfights with Porsche drivers on the Nürburgring in it. I mean, it was those, those are the things at my retirement party. I'll be like, that was cool. Like, that was truly a, you know, I read about all those kinds of cars when I was in high school and college. And then I was actually able to write one of the chapters in the muscle car history book of, like, putting the Z28 in production. I thought was cool. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So when you do, like, a... When you do like a, you know, a, a performance evaluation, you know, where you're looking at braking, acceleration, maximum speed, steady state stability, all that, all that fun stuff to put smiles on your face. Is that going to be the car that is your, your, you know, your holy grail? Is that going to be the one that for you is like, that's my girl? Well, it's like an old comfortable pair of driving gloves. You know, you, you, I get in that car and it's just like a great baseline. I know everything about it. And it's just, it's a great car. If I'm going out and evaluating some other vehicle, you know, you get that one out and drive it every now and then and be like, okay, that one was, that one was spot on. This car has got some little defects over in these other areas. So it's a good kind of baseline to touchstone back to. What well, can relate as far as, you know, putting your yeah. influence on a product and it gets out the door, you know, at some place like GM. Cause if you think about a vehicle, there are tens of thousands of decisions, you know, what, what style of a bumper or headlights or, or anything else, you know, obviously getting into the, uh, the, the vehicle dynamics area, but uh, you know, purchasing is involved and there's cost limitations and there's trade-offs and right. You don't just go build whatever you want. So there are thousands of people all making these tens of thousands of decisions. And you know, if you've got a vision on how things could maybe end up uh, it, it takes a lot of effort in some cases to write, to, to get your influence in there and, and to try to get things baked into the program that you know are going to be key to the result at the end. And, you know, and so you're trying to fight like, you know, we need more horsepower instead of the, uh, you know, the extra leather panel that goes in the door, you know, like, so you're trying to manage through this big giant system. Uh, so I, I can kind of relate to, uh, you know, all the things that you'll put into it from your engineering to, you know, influence to you name it all the way to the end. And then there you go, man. I feel proud of what I was able to accomplish in this giant system, you know. And that's part of the reason I build hot rods at home because I'm, I'm my own chief engineer. I can do, nah, yeah. I don't, I don't have to, you know, it's my budget, it's my timeline, it's all my problems. So I find a lot of personal satisfaction in my, in doing my personal hot rods. Cause you go from, I got a dream to production, you know, putting it out and going out and racing and doing stuff like that on the GM side, you know, ever since we had the high performance vehicle operation group, um, the leadership at GM has enabled us to build really great fast cars. And a lot of those fights weren't as bad as you thought they would be because there were, there were people in senior management positions that would listen to you and say, yeah, I believe you. We need to put that part on that car to make that car great. So that's trusting the people you put around you, man. That's smart. That's a yeah. good plan. Well, back up, you know, back up, you know, 10, 15 years ago or, or whenever there's, you know, like since, uh, you know, Oh five, I think the new Mustang kind of came out and, 
you know, then the new Camaro and, and the, you know, the Challenger. And, and so now there's this war and, and it's almost better that, you know, the competition's bringing the heat because that lets you co bring your heat. You know, like if there's no heat out there, there's no competition out there, you know, those battles are even tougher. Oh man, the competition <laughs> is what drives everything, man. So, yeah. hey, okay. man, Mark, we we got to go to a break right now, but you mentioned something a second ago that, that's very key, and I want you to take some of this home engineering that you referred to and being your home engineer and apply it to, you know, to our, our base here. How do you, you know, when people ask me how to set up the car, you know, I always say, you mentioned baseline, get a good baseline, frame height, you know, uh, cross weight percentage, tire compounds, spring rates, things like that, you know, weight bias, shock settings, have a good baseline set and then move forward from there. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit when you mentioned baseline and, and give us some tricks and tips that you kind of go through in setting up a car uh, for a big nasty road course or you know a tighter type track like what do you go through as far as upgrading how the car performs okay. on the track so think about that we'll take a break right now and come back more with Mark Stilo he is one incredible guy I can tell this is going to be a good podcast we're going to have to have this guy back on a regular alright quick break we're back to Mark and company it's the Two Guys Garage Podcast It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie B. We have Mark Stilo. He is a senior management guy at GM. Senior manager at GM. That's saying something, man. That's saying he's been there for a while in the advanced vehicle dynamics uh, division. And, you know, Mark, when, before we went to break, we were talking about baseline. You mentioned it earlier. And when anybody asked me about setting up a car, I'm like, well, have you established a baseline? Have you taken some notes? Do you know, you know your shock settings, your weight bias, your spring rates, your tire compound? Do you have it all logged in so you can start and just putting down laps and improving everything from there? So what are, what are some of the things that you do as the, one of the lead professional guys out there in setting up a car? If you were taking a car to a track for the first time, what would you kind of do? You know, I mean – if first time I'm going to take a car to track, I make, make sure I corner weight it. And the, the big thing is, you know, it depends on how green the car is. Like if it's a fresh, fresh build, you know, I've corner weighted, I've nut and bolted it and I'll go out pretty timid for the few, first few sessions and just try to kind of make sure everything's going good. And luckily, you know, I've got a decent baseline of a, you know, I, I go to my local track, Gingerman. I know that track real well and I can catch, kind of start sorting things out pretty quickly. So you know, you do springs, springs and bars first, and then once that setup is squared away, then you kind of get in your dampers, and then the final thing you want to tune is, you know, tire pressures. But if you go to get into some tire submission stuff, it gets a little more complicated. But uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's always get the get the passive elements down first, springs and bars. You know, get into your damping, and then later on tune up your t- tire pressures. Well, this is a guy that's built. Are you on what 17 or 18 Camaros now? I've done 17 of them, yeah. All right. So <laughs> he knows the first-gen Camaro like nobody does, right? Uh, and he knows the modern driveline and hardware and everything that goes in it. Um, and, Mark, you know, so I, I, I kind of get the feel, you know, chatting with you and conversations and whatnot that, you know, you're really going after this like like an engineer would. You're probably really calculating uh, where all your CGs are and, and everything else in the bill, what your total weight's going to be. Um, but you're looking at it as a system, right? A lot of us are just buying big parts. I got big brakes. I got a big engine. I got a big tire. Uh, and then we just go out and rerun it. Uh, any tips for really thinking about it a little bit more holistically so you end up with something maybe better than the sum of the parts kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, if you back up a little bit, I mean, for me, I always think about when I start a project, what are you going to do with it? 
And once you kind of come up with that, it really kind of answers the questions on why you're, why you're selecting whatever you're selecting. So if you rewind back to 1993, when I built my first really kind of magazine quality pro touring car, I was building that car to race car and drivers one lap of America. So I knew what the mission statement was. I wanted to drive from racetrack to racetrack. I had to hit all these tracks. So I needed bigger brakes. I needed overdrive transmissions. I needed a roll cage. I needed some creature comforts to try to survive the thing. The first year I didn't have any of that. I was young and dumb. So, you know, it's kind of like you got to kind of like decide why are you building this car? What am I going to do with it? And, you know, where is it going? Then later on, you know, back, you know, around when I met you in the 2010 timeframe, I was trying to build a car to win Optima Ultimate Streetcar Invitational. So there was the design portion of it where it had to look nice, had to be painted. There was an autocross portion of it, speed stop, road course, and the drivability portion. So you had to build a SEMA quality car, but it had to be hardened enough to go out and do these track events. So I see a lot of people, they start on these projects, and like, why are you doing this? I mean, what, what's your end goal here? Is it just to have something you can drive to Sonic to get an ice cream cone, or is this something you're going to take out to the track and do something? All right, so once you've determined that you're going to go to the track, mm. maybe give us some tips. And Who doesn't want to go to the track, by the way? Who doesn't want to go to the track? <laughs> well, I, know, I definitely know I want to go. Um, so say we're going to step it up from Sonic, right, and we're going to hit Gingerman or Waterford or, you know, VIR or anywhere else that's uh, nearby you, right? So um, now we're legit going out for, uh, you know, track days or Optima or any other kind of series. Uh, any tips and you could break down into, you know, suspension or brakes or anything else that, that, that you see people just doing wrong. They don't quite get right. You know, whether it's bias on your brake setups, you know, in proportion of, you know, sizes front and rear, they just buy the shiniest thing or, you know, is there any gimmicks in the suspension bit or, you know, any of that kind of thing that, uh, you know, that you seem to know the ins and outs of and really kind of pull together and you just see people just not quite getting I mean, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. You, you, kinda, you can kind of ca- watch the evolution of in the last 12 or 13 years. Like people were this, you know, as, a, as open track days become, became more popular and uh, the Optima stuff became a little more, little more prominent. You know, people who had what they thought were decent cars, they'd take them to open track days and they'd overheat them. They would fail brakes. They'd fail, fail suspension parts. And you saw people gradually learning in kind of a painful way, what it took to put a car together to take to the track. So, you know, the biggest thing I see, like, I'll give you, I'll back up a little bit. Like, I can tell if a car's prepped reasonably well. Like, somebody will ask me at the racetrack, like, hey, take my car for a couple laps. My first question to the guy is, what brake fluid do you have in it? If the guy doesn't know that he's got racing brake fluid in it, I won't step in it because I know he hasn't prepped the car. So the biggest thing I see people not doing, taking a car to an open track day, is they need to understand that they need to prep it. They need to make sure they got enough cooling on it, enough gauges that they can monitor everything so that they know when to back out of it so they don't hurt themselves or hurt their cars. So, you know, there's the getting the car squared away and then getting yourself squared away. So what you're saying is is you're a brake fluid snob, actually. You're, you're a brake fluid snob. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even use brake fluid. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've had a couple of failed brake systems in my career, and it is a frightening experience. <laughs> oh yeah, <man>. yes it <laughs> is. Man. Hey, how do you feel? How do you feel about donks? <laughs> oh, donks, you know, you know, that's where they like to roll. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kidding. All right, so I'm gonna pick your brain a little bit, man. I just acquired um, a '67 Camaro. 
Okay. It's, uh, it's an old 396 car. It's got an old 427 in it. It's got a recent rebuild on it. But I'm going to eventually do an LS swap in that car. And it's something that I want to you know, upgrade the engine and transmission. Say I come to you and I go, okay, my budget is, I don't know, reasonable 15 grand. You know, to 20 grand. Like a budget build car, but you want it to handle. What would you, what would you suggest? I mean... The best bang for your buck is the crate, you know, to start off with the drive line, crate motors, you know, a nice LS3 crate motor. Let's just say I've got the crate motor. I got 10, 10 to blow on, making the car stop and handle well. Um, the problem is, like, I mean, for the first gen Camaros, the front suspension geometry is suboptimal. So you need to either go to a taller spindle or go to a complete new subframe in the front of it. The subframe in the front of it's a pretty big price hit, but you gain a lot of things by doing it. So if you can sump stomach, go into a Detroit Speed front clip, you get rack and pinion steering, you get good spindles, you get, you got great options for brake componentry, the headers fit a lot better, everything about the car becomes quite a bit happier. Now, if you want to stay more on a budget, I've done a number of stock subframe cars. You can go that way, keep the rear steer, recirculating ball, and, and get a car that works pretty well. So it's, 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 a, it's a balance of parts. You know, it's, it's a big um, financial burden to buy, putting the, the, a new subframe underneath of it, but it's a great foundation for, a, for like a house that you want to add to later. So if you want right, to continue right. to lean on the car and do more and more with it, investing in a, a good, you know, good front, front, front suspension will be money well spent, I think. All right, what's your next step? Let's say, let's say Willie just coined up and he bought a DSE. He's got the whole front end. Uh, where do you go from there? Well, I mean, the, the whole system of the front suspension and the rear suspension together, you know, you know beyond just getting a, a, the four-link rear suspension with, this, with the coilover shocks, it gets that killer quarter rear three-quarter view where you get that 315 tire or 335 tire in the back which makes the car look really badass and it really works well in, in, the, in, the, in the car. And back to one of your earlier questions, when you're setting the car up, you got to kind of look at what tire availability is out there. And right now, like the, the 18 tires are kind of the hot tires for all these open track day kind of stuff. So you got to kind of start building your car around what, what tires you want to run on it. And then that kind of drives what kind of brake package and those kinds of things. So right on. Yeah, no, the tire is your, Right, it's your contact with the ground. No, yeah. from tires perspective, what what's the hot tire or tires right now for these open days? Well, the the, the weird thing is like a lot of the sanctioning bodies, you know, SCCA, good guys, um, and uh, auto and SCCA, they're all sticking this two hundred treadwear tire. So, and it's kind of a misnomer that that tire is not a two hundred treadwear tire, but the the fast one right now is either the BFG R one R one point five or the the Falcon's a decent one. If you're just going to do open track days, you know, some of the other tires, are they last a little bit longer, but the BFG stuff is fastest right now. That's the Rival? Yeah, the Rival S's. Yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's a pretty good tire. Now, if you go from tire, you got your wheel set, and you go into brakes. I know you've tried different setups in the aftermarket. Um, anything to really look out for as far as, um, you know, obviously you need size and you need heat capacity and, and whatnot, but there's probably a lot of, you know, small features that, that guys aren't thinking about, whether it's, you know, pad compound, whether it's knockback or, you know, you name it. Yeah, the biggest problem these old muscle cars have is uh, people run a classic Ford 9-inch or Ford 9-inch or 12-bolt style or live axle, 
And those things really aren't designed to take a lot of cornering loads. So you'll get the rear axle moving side to side in the vehicle and then get quite a bit of brake knockback. So, you know, it's, it's interesting guys when they really start, really start kind of once the car gets hard and they start going a little bit faster, then they start really leaning on the car. They're going to get into a long pedal because of brake knocked back with the with conventional four nine inch style rear axles. Okay. And what's your, what's your best way to handle that? So you can How do you go solve to, it? I go to a floater type setup. So you can go to a full blown floater like bear offers or to go to a NASCAR setup. But now some people are adapting like a C6 Corvette bearing and putting it on the end of a four nine inch axle. And that gives you a nice solid bearing with no brake knockback, no run out or any kind of stuff. So back in the 2010 timeframe, I made my own system to do that. It enabled me to get a good bearing. It gave me wheel speed sensors. It gave me an ability to put ABS on my cars also. So that, that package worked out pretty well. See, I, lo- I love the fact he was just, he was just like, I just built my own out of scratch. You know, that's, that's yeah. just awesome. Engineering brain. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking into his, his uh, garage right now, and I've been in there, and it, it, it's set up so dope. I mean, in the background right now, looking at him, he's got all his you know magazine covers up on the wall, his uh, big uh, cabinetry right behind him, and it's it's a killer setup, and this guy makes no joke rides, man. Now, you, you mentioned ABS, um, uh, and, and you talked about it before as far as uh, you know being a you know, a pretty solid enabler these days. Uh, now, it's one thing to have it from the factory where you have all the, you know, whether it's uh, Bosch or whoever that owns the system and is tuning it and everything like that. For the for the guy doing a pro touring car, uh, is there a good solution for that? Right now, no. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I mean, uh, it's the reason that, uh, you know, if you make the analogy between ABS modules and engine control modules, Hypertech, HP tuners, everybody else cracked into ECMs because there's a much bigger market to do that. So it's not really viable to crack into ABS module because there's not that many people who really want to do it. So, and then, then the other problem is like everybody's got a snowflake out there. Like, so even if I came up with like an, an ABS module, you want to run Willwood brakes, you know, Willie wants to run stop tech, somebody else wants to run bear. Everybody's got their own little secret sauce on how they want to do stuff. And the, the thing about the most people are going to the Bosch Motorsports system because you can go in there with your laptop and you can calibrate all that stuff. It's what I call an open architecture. You can have access to get into the cow and modify it. You know, if you copy everything that GM did or Ford did or or, or BMW and put it in your hot rod and, and and make it think it's in its host vehicle, it'll work. Um, but that's kind of a, a challenging setup. For yeah. Most people. yeah. Now are you, uh, I think you've done the Bosch motorsports one before. Is that something that you would do again? I've done the Bosch motorsports one. It worked great. Uh, I've, I've hacked into the C6 Corvette stuff and thought it was, um, made it think it was still in a Corvette and uh, that's, that works out really well also. Now I want to know how you made it think it was a Corvette because there, my friend lies one hell of a trick. <laughs> well, you just missed and if for things back in the 2008 time frame, there really wasn't that many signals. So it's not that it's not that bad to do, yeah. but you got to stay to the same, uh, what they call RPK revs per kilometer, the same, you know, same diameter of the, of the tires, keep the piston volumes, you know, reasonable and stuff like that. So I always tell people kind of like, Oh, you took your C5 Corvette 
let me see, you change the wheels, you change the rotors, you change the brakes, you change the pistons on all four corners, and now the brakes don't work, the ABS doesn't work right. So let me, let me see, you took your engine and you changed the cam, you changed the heads, you changed the intake, you changed the mass sensor, and it doesn't run right. So it's, it's a similar kind of problem. Like you can't, change, you can't get it so far off the reservation that it's not going to be happy. There you go. It's wisdom, y'all. Wisdom. Taking notes. <laughs> yeah, we need somebody out there that's going to hack that thing like an HP tuner and give us the right, goods that right. we want. So anybody listening out there, just do it. Just do it. Yeah, man. Give it to no us. No doubt. Well, Mark, <laughs> you know, obviously you're such a, a hell of a resource and a wealth of knowledge. I feel like we got to have you on again. And, uh, you know, we just peeled back a couple of the uh, layers on the onion. There's uh, so much more when they're, you know, when you're talking about track time. So, wrap it up here why don't you give us one or two more ideas or things off the top of your head that you know people might get just a little bit wrong but you feel like if they did a or b their times would increase you know dramatically so i'll give the advice that a person gave me when i first started doing open track days was start off in a slow car work on momentum work on technique and work on line and you'll get faster i didn't do that I started off with a 450 horsepower 69 Camaro and almost killed myself multiple times. Think, hey, Mark, hold on. I don't see. I've heard that same <laughs> advice, bro. I, I raced motocross pro, and one of the best advice I ever got was, you know, if you slow down, you'll go faster. You know, pick your lines. You don't have to win the race in the first time, which is very difficult to do. So I understand, you know, that that need to go out there and just hammer it, you know, and and I gotta I gotta show up, man. I gotta show up first lap. I'm doing things. I understand that it's really difficult to actually do, though. I know later on in my career, I started doing development driving on a Solstice SSB package and it was a 177 horsepower car. And I learned so much more about driving, about trying to just maintain momentum, keep my input smooth, you know, crisp braking, you know, really, you know, and your lap times were so dependent on being clean and concise that when I got back into my high horsepower cars, I was faster. So yeah. I, de I've, I developed great car control skills by driving really hairy cars, but I, I gained a uh, lap time by becoming smooth and consistent and really understanding momentum. It's like the old saying, it's fun to drive a slow car fast, you know, a lot more fun than it is driving a fast car slow, you know? So yeah, if you can get in a slow car and just push yourself and get smoother, smooth, you know, being consistent around the course and track, being smooth is, is always going to, you know, equate to the best ETs and best times. So that's what I tell everybody too, man, get as smooth as you can. Easier said than done though, man. Easier said than done because we're all about building horsepower and going fast, <laughs> stupid fast. So. Uh, all right. Well, hey, Mark, we <laughs> so thank you for just being a, a hell of a resource, a wealth of knowledge. And one final question as we wrap up, um, what kind of brake fluid do you run? You know, I run uh, <laughs> something that has like a 600, 600 degree uh, boiling point kind of brake fluid. I was running stuff called Super Blue, and you can't get it anymore because – whatever they don't they outlawed the blue fluid so now it's yellow but uh, i tend to run that break <laughs> uh, so you just just want to make sure you know you were uh, on the on the no <laughs> hey i put that i put that in my coffee in the morning man just to get me all right, fired right. up you know i thought he was gonna hit us with a, a dot three just to mess with us <laughs> Hey, man, we really, really appreciate um, you, your time. Thanks for joining us today, man, as always. And uh, we hope to have you back on the show for sure. 
It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, man, and don't forget about our show, Aaron Weekends on the Motor Trend Network. Check your local listings. Episodes also now streaming on Motor Trend On Demand, which is a great resource for us. Thanks to our guest, Mark Stilo. What a guy, man. Jesus, Kevin, that guy was on point. Um, I am Willie B. That is Kevin Bird, our producer is Scoop, and our executive producer is Bob Ecker. Yeah, and don't forget to check out our website, twoguysgarage.com, and share your thoughts with us. We're on social. We're everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Guys Garage. And Two Guys Garage Podcast is a copyright 2020 Britain Productions Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey, man, I can't wait for the next Two Guys Garage TV show. That's going to be our secret, like, you know, like a secret code word. And hey, what kind of brake fluid you run it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of brake fluid you run it? <laughs> now you know. <laughs> what color? Right, we'll what see, color is yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you guys on the next Two Guys Garage podcast. Take care. See you guys. Two Guys Garage podcast is a production of Britain Productions. For more episodes, visit iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.